And so let us hear the word of our God, Psalm 115, verse 1. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, as we begin today... um, Some of you may be aware of uh, some of the happenings here in the last couple weeks in the NFL, and I'm thinking especially of what happened with DeMar Hamlin with uh, uh, his heart basically stopping there in the field, and they had to revive him and so forth. He's now home, actually, and recovering. Uh, But the reason I bring it up is is this. Um, He professes faith. He's a young kid. I think he's 24 or something. And he's known to be a man of, of faith, and um, family is important to him, and so forth. Uh, actually, from the Pittsburgh area. Um, <clears throat> but the team has been so impacted by this. Because here's DeMar Hamlin saying he believes in Jesus and this kind of thing. <clears throat> and uh, the people are trying to respond to this, right? And, and many just ignore him, you know, that kind of thing. Well, what was so striking to me here in this past week is uh, maybe you know the Bills played the Patriots uh, last Sunday, and the very first play for the Bills, they had a kickoff return for a touchdown. And then later in the game, another one happened. I think the first time in 20 years or something, there were two returns for a touchdown. What was so striking to me is afterward to hear Josh Allen, the quarterback, he said, I now believe there is a God. I now know God exists. I'm like, what? Where'd that come from? Well, the coach then, Coach McDermott, also said, all glory goes to God. And it was interesting, as I learned more about some of the, you know, behind-the-scenes conversations in this way, that uh, the coach basically said, God's going to show himself today to us. Well, then they have this kickoff return. And Josh Allen says, I now know God exists, and he's talking about wanting to serve Christ now, and so forth. Uh, You know, when we talk about idols, which we just read about, we're going to talk about here today, we often think that those are things that happened years and years ago. But there still is this question 
in verse 2 that we face today. Where is their God? This is what the unbeliever asks all the time. Where is this God you talk about, this Jesus you talk about? We can't see him or hear him or whatever. Well, God does show himself to be real and sometimes very dramatically. And it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward with the Buffalo Bills team and, and so forth. And, um, and so the, the, the connections here are very, if you will, relevant and current in this way. And that's just one example. Well, with all that in mind, <clears throat> we begin another psalm. And so let's again step back here just a moment and recall the bigger picture. Israel here has returned from Babylon, from exile to the promised land. And that's the focus here in book five. And um, they've been reestablished there. And so this section here toward the beginning of this book, Psalms 111 to 117, emphasize our praise to God. Uh, if you include Psalms 110 and 118 that we just read there in Luke 20 uh, from both of those Psalms, uh, we have this emphasis then on the Messiah, on the Exodus, on God's character, on our need for godliness, and how Yahweh is worthy of all of our praise. This section is called the Egyptian Hallelujah and came to be used annually during the Passover celebration. And so here in whatever, a couple weeks or something, when we read in, in Luke, we'll read of them singing these Psalms. Psalm 114 is central because it sticks up, if you will, at the top of this pyramid. It stands out and it highlights the greatness of God's presence and how the earth responded. They trembled at his coming and, and Israel trembled too. But God provided a way for his people to survive this holy presence among them. And it is through the work of our priest king the son of David in the order of Melchizedek, who came in the name of Yahweh to atone for our sins. This is how we can be in God's presence. And it, can you say, enables God to survive our sinful uh, presence. And so we begin now, if you will, the other side of the pyramid, so to speak. These three Psalms through 117 they follow this central psalm, and we start right away here in Psalm 115 with this emphasis on Yahweh as the true God and that everything else is just an idol and it is nothing. And so after the exile, this is part of their focus, right? Don't return to the idols like you did before the exile. That's why we went into the exile. Idols are nothing. So this would be part of the message, and again, something they sang annually when they celebrated their exodus. All right, well, let's look here then at the handout of Psalm 115. And, and if you look at the back of the, the first page, we start some of the outlines. And again, I, um, I give these to you and encourage you to go read the psalm and, and compare and such so you can learn more of how this is put together. But very simply, the first one is obviously very general, two halves ending with hallelujah. And we'll look at verses 1 to 8 today. Uh, the next two subdivide verses 9 to 18. And then if you look at the next page... Um, the next two outlines separate verse 1 because it, it really does kind of stand out there at the beginning. And you can see uh, the way they've organized it. The last one then is more of a, a chiasm. And the, the middle section, verses 9 to 15, are the central points. And we'll look at that, uh, Lord willing, next week. Now, as for statistics, we return to, if you will, the normal <laughs> here in this section, and that is Yahweh's name. Remember, Psalm 114 didn't have it at all, uh, but here it is 13 times when you include the short form. Uh, Elohim's used twice, 
uh, verses 2 and 3, and you see all the pronouns in the total. And then if you look at the very bottom there, the third plural, 26 times, uh, it's used in verses 2 to 11. And so our um, emphasis here then simply is this. The nations and the idols contrast their unbelief, their false gods, with Israel and the true God, Yahweh. Now, two more things to mention just briefly. As you read through the psalm, and maybe you noticed this as I read a moment ago, the pronouns tend to go back and forth. You tend to have a a verse or a section of verses with a certain pronoun, and then it changes. And this has led some people to speculate that maybe Israel, when they sang this, went back and forth. We call that antiphonal singing. So it's possible that Jesus sang, say, verse 1, and the apostles sang verse 2 or you know, something like that. Um, and it, We don't know for sure, but it, it, it is a possibility. And then, if you turn um, to the beginning of the psalm, uh, the last thing here by way of overview is as we look at the beginning, <coughs> beginning there's, there's nothing there. Again, there's no title um, here in this psalm like we've seen. And so we don't know for sure who wrote it. We don't know when it was written. It really could have been written at any time in Israel's history after the Exodus. Um, it, 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 uh, many people have argued for different times. But what is often the case, though, is people say, okay, it's here in Book 5. Maybe it was written after the exile. Maybe Haggai wrote it or something like that. Uh, some have suggested it was used at the dedication of the second temple, the one they rebuilt. Maybe. Whatever the case, this is the first psalm that they sang after they had the Passover meal. So they would have sung Psalms 113 and 114 before the meal, and now this, after they ate, after they came out, uh, or celebrated coming out of Egypt, right, the first thing out of their mouth in song is, hey, idols are nothing. Hey, don't do the golden calf again, kind of idea. And so you see how it uh, help them in their, their godliness. All right, well, with these background things, now we can better understand what the psalm is saying. So let's jump right in here then to verse 1. Not to us, O Yahweh, not to us, rather to your name. And then note the imperative here. Give glory because of your covenant love, because of your truth. You see how that all flows there. I've tried to indent things to help you to see how the the thought goes there let's start with that imperative in the middle give glory now notice the pronoun that goes with it is singular well it's your name your covenant love your truth that's referring to Yahweh so the command is to Yahweh the psalmist is commanding Yahweh to give glory now, whenever we're commanding Yahweh, right, we're talking about petition, we're asking, we're, we're humbly requesting. And so here is the psalmist doing that. Now, we might think this is a little bit strange, but we do this every month. We pray this exact prayer, or you might say we command God to do this very thing. Whenever we do the Lord's Prayer, we are asking God to do those six things. And the first one is, hallowed be your name. It's the exact same idea. Give glory to yourself, Lord. Okay. And so here is what the psalmist says. And possibly when Jesus gave the prayer, he had Psalm 115 in mind. We don't know, but certainly it fits. 
So in Matthew 6, verse 9, hallowed be your name. May your name be hallowed. We petition you, God, to glorify yourself, to lift up your name above all other things. And so as here, verse 1 begins, not to us, O Yahweh, not to us. Note the repetition. Okay? We, we don't deserve glory, but you do, O Lord. And so note the contrast, not to us, rather to your name. Now, as we saw just even here in Psalm 113, the name of God emphasizes his whole being, all of who he is, his attributes, his names, his works. But the specific name of God, of course, is Yahweh. That's his personal name, if you will, his covenant name. And obviously it stands out in verse 1 as it's put there right in the middle Uh, of that first line. And so this name emphasizes, again, right, existence and presence. Those are the two main ideas. I am existence, and I will be with you. He has entered into covenant relationship with us. There's this personal connection. He is imminent, we say, but he's also transcendent, and he is over all things, right? The first uh, hymn we sang, right, O Father, you are sovereign. That's, That's the whole idea. He is with us, but he is above everything. All right, now, why should God glorify himself and not us? Well, now we have the end of verse 1. Because of your covenant love, and secondly, because of your truth. These are those two very important covenant terms, chesed and emeth. I've used those terms many times now over the years. Uh, Two vitally important words, and simply, it's referring to God and his love by way of covenant. He's entered into this relationship, this agreement, and Christ, of course, is our covenant keeper. And so we have married him. He has done all these things to make us right in our relationship with him. And, of course, his truth. We have his word. He has made promises. He keeps those promises for us. And so Yahweh is gracious. He is loving. He is forgiving. He never lies. He is faithful. He is truthful. Because of these things, God deserves glory, not us. Okay. Now, certainly there are other attributes, but these are the ones that are emphasized here. And so we should hallow God's name for these things. We didn't save ourselves. We're not all that faithful. We didn't seek after God. We make promises and we break them all the time. This is why God deserves the glory. He came to us. He sent forth his son from our perspective right now after Christ, from Israel's perspective, right? You think of the Exodus and looking forward to the Messiah. But the son of David has come. And in the order of Melchizedek to be this chief cornerstone, to die an atoning death so that we can be saved. And so because he has done this, he deserves the glory. So if we say as Christians that I chose Jesus, it was my decision. If we say that it's all up to me and my free will, or I'm going to pull up myself by my bootstraps or something like that, notice we're claiming glory for ourselves. But we're dead in our sins. We would never come to God unless he came first to us. Amen. We can go then another step here. If we say that Christ has done some things and I then contribute something to my standing before God, well, now we are wanting some of that glory. 
and, and it can be any kinds of things, right? If we say that Mary contributed to the work of Christ as co-redemptrix, as they say, well, now taking glory away from God. If you say that Christ's work, you know, accomplished whatever, 80%, and now we do the sacraments to finish it, now we're taking glory away from him. If we say that the people in the Old Testament were saved by keeping the sacrifices and all the commandments, well, now we're saying that they are saved in a different way than Christ, and that takes glory away from him. If we say that, um, you know, you can be saved, but you have to be immersed, or if you're a true Christian, you're going to speak in tongues, do you see now how we're adding something to what Christ has done? If we say I'm justified by my faithfulness, again, we are calling attention to ourselves, taking that glory. So as the saying goes, you know, I don't, uh, we, we could talk about any of our behaviors. And so if we were to say, I don't drink and chew and date those who do, or I don't play cards or watch our movies or go dancing, and somehow this adds to what Christ has done and, and makes me a true Christian or something like that, we're missing the point. What is maybe the most common thing we're hearing today in the evangelical church is, if you repent of your whiteness, then you're a real Christian. Yeah, I could be here giving all kinds of examples for, you know, hours really, but do you see the point? God has entered into covenant love, into covenant with us because of his covenant love. He has made promises. He has fulfilled them in Christ. And so he deserves all the glory. If we try to take even a little bit of that, then we're stealing from him. And so after um, celebrating the Passover meal, the first thing out of their mouths in song is, this is all God's doing. He brought us out of Egypt, not because of anything we have done, but because of who he is, because of his grace, because of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we should have the same kind of mindset when it comes to our salvation. Now, when we add something to what Christ has done, this is really a form of idolatry. We're really worshiping ourselves to some degree. Or something that we do, something here that God has made. And so it's, it, it makes sense, really, that verse 1 would segue into idolatry here in these next verses. But to bridge that gap, so to speak, we have verse 2. And so it says, Why should the nation say, Where, pray tell, is their God? Now, again, they just celebrate the Passover and, and so forth. So the idea of Egypt would make sense. You know, the, the, the Egyptian nation saying, where's their God? And of course, Pharaoh did that, right? He mocked, who is Yahweh? Okay. But they also just came back from Babylon. So maybe that's what they're thinking. And certainly there are many other times that they could talk about the nations and uh, mocking in this way. Unbelievers today do it. Uh, I just read an article here, I think it was on Friday, about the pastor's story hour that was supposed to happen in a library, I think it was in Boston or something. Well, it got canceled because of the woke crowd, and you know, we have unbelievers that are mocking us too. It's not just way back then. 
And so they asked then, where is their God? And notice this, this word in the middle. I've translated as pray tell, and, and all the translations try to do something with that word. Um, and I, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the commentators said this, and I, I, I liked it. Uh, I think it captures the idea. The, the term is often used in the context of crying out for help. So maybe you could you know, cry out to someone else to help you, but ultimately, of course, we cry out to God for help. So uh, this word is often used in the context uh, of this context. You know, help me, O God, or help me, I pray, and, and so forth. So this one, it, it's, it's for emphasis, and in this context, it's, it's to emphasize the mocking, really. So where I pray is their God doesn't quite work so well, but pray tell, I think, is a little bit better uh, in this way. But the point simply is this. In the ancient world, every religion had an image of their God. And so you go to their temple, you go into the throne room of the king, uh, you go to battle, you know, whatever it is, they would have an image or images of their God. But of course, Yahweh did, or excuse me, Israel didn't because Yahweh said, you can't, you cannot represent me in an image. Obviously, we have the second commandment that forbids the making of images of God. And so from the perspective of the Gentile, it looks like Israel doesn't have a God. They have no image of their God, so they must not have a God. You can't see him, you can't touch him, and so forth. So they would mock Israel, they would mock Yahweh, and especially when Israel was suffering. When Israel fell into sin and God would bring, you know, whatever nation against them and so forth, it was common to associate then this mocking. So, you know, think of when the Assyrians came and they surrounded Jerusalem and the Rab Shakah is mocking Yahweh and Israel. It's just one example. So uh, certainly they would have heard mocking when they were in Babylon. Hey, you have no God helping you. <clears throat> now let me go back to where I started. You think of Damar Hamlin. Here is a man who claims to be a believer. Um, and yet he almost died on the field. It's very easy for people to say, well, you say you believe in God, you say you believe in Jesus, but, <clears throat> you know, you can't see your God, and God's not helping you, obviously, you're almost dead here. And yet, as we see what's happened over the last couple of weeks, God is using this, actually, to get people to realize he really is the true God. And so God often will bring hardships in our lives, and many times it's because of our sin, but in the end, it's to show everyone, including ourselves, that God is the true and living God. And so that's how we then transition to verses 3 and following. This now is an answer to these mocking questions. And so in verse 3, but our God is in the heavens. All that he desired, he did. Obviously, the contrast here couldn't be uh, even uh, more stark than this. Now, we have to assume a verb here in this first line, and it seems to emphasize something that just exists, right? Our God is, and he, he lives in heaven, you could say. He's always sitting enthroned in the heavens. He is above all. 
He is the only true God. And not only is our God above all, he does whatever he wants. All that God wanted to do, he has done. This is good and bad. And so we can often say, well, you know, God was in whatever it was. And that was a good thing. You know, God is with us. God helped us and so forth. But he's also in the things that aren't so good. When your child has a third cancer or when you almost die in a football field or the insurance companies are causing you trouble, you know, it, it, God's in these things too. All that he desired, he has done. And so as creator, hey, God spoke and there it was. God has made us the way he wanted us to be, even if we have a big nose or a crooked smile or whatever. That's the way God made us. In his providence, obviously, everything that happens is from his hand. In his redemption, as I talked about a little bit ago, all that he desired, he did. He sent Christ to redeem us. He is fully sovereign. And so we start with that idea, right? God, give glory to yourself because you are God and you deserve the praise. And even though other people mock this idea, hey, you truly are the God who lives above all things, who exists and does whatever he pleases. Well, idols, on the other hand, false gods, on the other hand, are very different, are they not? And so verse 4, their idols are silver and gold, work of hands of a man. In translations, we'll smooth that out a little bit. And note again, we're assuming a word. God is, and now here idols are. The existence of God is something that is, is forever. But the existence of idols is very different, is it not? They are made by something that the true God made. God made man, God made the silver and gold and the wood and anything else that you can make an idol out of. The point simply is, idols are an invention of man. Okay. So whether we're talking about a figurine, which obviously is the emphasis here, and so whether we're talking about Baal or Buddha or any other image, this has been created by a human, fashioned but let's go to the next step. Maybe we don't actually make a figurine, but we make a God in our minds. And so maybe you think of Allah or the great spirit or secularism, uh, evolution. We can have gods in our minds here in these ways, too, even if we don't have an actual figurine. Well, all that's dreamed up by humans, too. May not fashioned with their hands, but at least fashioned in the mind. But then, of course, we, we have to go the next step. Because even in Israel's history, they stopped worshiping figurines after the exile. Okay? But that didn't mean that idolatry went away. It just kind of morphed into something more, I don't know, uh, insidious. If you have someone with a figurine there, it's pretty easy to see that they're worshiping an idol. But what about the idols in our hearts? They're still there. 
and in some ways they're far more. And so, you know, the, the, the big three that we obviously uh, talk about, you know, we can worship money, power, and fame. And we see that uh, certainly in our culture. We see it even uh, among believers. But, you know, we can go and worship something else. We can make an idol of something else, even something that is good. And so when you see parents living vicariously through their children, that's a form of idolatry. When we are putting our trust in our parents or our grandchildren or something like that, rather than trusting God, we're looking for them for our value and worth. That has become an idol for us. Okay. We can talk about any number of religious practices, coming to church or reading our Bible or praying or giving or helping someone. You know, th these obviously are good things, but if we are putting our trust in those things, adding to the work of Christ, okay, we're taking away from glo his glory and they have really become an idol for us. We are worshiping that rather than God. Obviously, people worship political figures, uh, sports heroes, movie stars. Children may uh, make an idol of some favorite toy. We may make an idol of some treasure that we have and don't want to part from. We certainly can make an idol of wanting to be respected. We all struggle with that idol to some degree or another. Um, our culture especially emphasizes well, God just wants me to be happy. And so happiness and feelings of joy and so forth, okay, these can become idols. Some actually have figurines on their mantles, maybe a guardian angel they look to, or Mary. Some people put a rabbit's foot in their pocket, a rally cap on their head, or a lucky number they always use. I can keep going. Do you see the point? Really, anything can become an idol for us. And so don't just say, oh, you know, those foolish nations way back then. You know, what about us? Hey, what idols are we worshiping? And we must examine ourselves. But, you know, all of those are nothing in comparison to the true and living God. Hey, none of them can show covenant love the way God can. None of them actually save us. None of them, in the end, are truthful and faithful. All of them will fail us in one way or another because they're creatures in some way. These idols we worship, we have made. They are creations that may some may actually speak or see or hear or touch or move, but God made them. So... The obvious focus here in the psalm are the figurines, but we can't just limit ourselves to that. We must recognize there are many other idols that we can and do make and worship. But again, here is Israel. They've gone into exile because of their idolatry. They're back from exile, and as they're remembering the Passover, how God had saved them, the first thing they say after the meal is, I'm going to worship the true God. We're not going to make a golden calf again. We're not going to worship idols. We're going to worship the true and living God. 
And that should be our mentality. We're going to come to the Lord's table next week and our, our Passover meal. And as we exit, we should be at least singing in our minds this idea. And we will sing Psalm 115 next week. So have this, this same mentality that the, uh, the, the Israelites here had in this way. Well, let's now look at the specifics of verses 5 to 7. <clears throat> Verse 5, <clears throat> a mouth to them, but they are not speaking. Eyes to them, but they are not seeing. Obviously, the human artisan uh, made this idol with a mouth and with eyes, but this hunk of metal can't actually see or speak. The true God, on the other hand, that we cannot see, actually does see. The, the, the God that we cannot hear audibly, though occasionally he has spoken from heaven audibly, but most of the time he doesn't, okay? well, he's the one who actually speaks. He has given us his word, he has sent forth Christ, and so forth. Now, as we transition to verses 6 and 7, you see the same pattern. Verse 5, 6, and 7, at least the first two lines of verse 7 are all the same. Two lines rhyming this parallel idea, right, in each one of them, different enough uh, not synonymous, but uh, still notice uh, the same uh, basic idea in each. And notice also verses 5 and 6 are worded a certain way with four words. Verse 7 is worded slightly differently with three words apiece. But <clears throat> that's just some of the creativity. The idea is very straightforward in each one of these. The body part is listed first to emphasize, hey, just don't work. So verse 6, ears to them but they're not hearing, a nose to them, but they are not smelling. And so the human craftsman made the ears and the nose on this block of wood and overlaid it with silver or gold, <clears throat> but it can't smell, cannot hear. But the true God, he does hear. <clears throat> when we pray, and even when we don't pray, he hears everything. God smells, especially that sweet smell of an atoning sacrifice which ultimately is Christ. In verse 7, their hands, but they are not touching, their feet, but they are not walking. So notice worded slightly differently there. Um, same thing, rhyming the idea. The human creator has carved hands and feet, but he can't touch or walk. And then it ends with this third line, they are not making a sound in their throat. Okay. <clears throat> Idols can't do anything. But the true and living God actually took on these features. The second person of the Trinity has come and has taken on human characteristics. He did and still does have a mouth and eyes and ears and nose, hands and feet, literally like we do. He came to walk among us. He touched people to heal them. He uttered many sounds from his throat. And ultimately, this is the only can I say, figurine that is worth worshiping. Christ is made in the image of God, fully representing and reflecting him. We read from Colossians 1 a little bit ago that said some of these very things. Hebrews 1 says similar things. Okay. And so uh, only Jesus can fully represent God. He is the one who we must worship. Now, <clears throat> let me briefly say this then. We cannot then make a figurine of Christ. Okay? 
Apostles didn't tell us what he looked like. <laughs> and we still have the second commandment. So we cannot make a figurine. We cannot make a picture of Christ. Because those two are human inventions. We are going to limit Christ every time we try to represent him. Okay? We, Christ is not limited just in his person. And so once we get to see him, we can worship him fully. Um, but every other representation of Christ is a human invention in one way or another. Now, the other thing to mention here is this. <clears throat> in uh, the ancient world, and even today you'll hear uh, some religions that say this, that in that figurine they made of their God, they believed their God came and dwelt in it in one way or another. So think of Dagon or, or Baal or Asherah or something. Uh, they believed the God existed out there, but in that idol there was an incarnation of that God. And so you carried the God wherever you went, and so God was with you, this kind of idea. But of course, that's a corruption of what is true. Even those who believe the God was incarnate in the king, so like in Egypt, the sun god Ra was incarnate in Pharaoh, um, that's a corruption of Christ, the true incarnation, the true representative of the true God. And so, again, you see this contrast. We have the true and living God, verse 1, verse 3 especially. And then you have the contrast in verse 2 and now verses 4 and following. Okay? None of these idols, none of them, even the human-like ones, can do what God can do and can fully represent him. Okay? And so... Um, Here's the contrast. None of them can do what God can do, which is anything, right? Verse 3, and save us, verse 1. Which brings us to the end of verse 8. Just like them, they are they who are making them, all who are trusting in them. Okay. <clears throat> the point's pretty straightforward here, isn't it? Idolaters become like the idol they made. Now, this may include performing rituals, okay, spells, incantations, dressing up the idol, feeding it, washing it. But, you know, when we think of idols today, especially non-figurines, things that are in our minds or whatever, when we give our time and our attention, our energy, our money to whatever idol that we have, we start becoming like that idol. We start reflecting it. We start resembling it. And Israel did that. Right? They would resemble their idols. And that's why they were sent into exile. Okay. So think of it in this way. <clears throat> Maybe for someone their idol is money. Well, they start looking like money. Okay? The clothes that they wear, the car that they drive. You know, they, they always talk about it, right? Everything becomes a, a, an emphasis on, on that particular thing. Or to put it in this way, say your idol is being respected by those around you. Well, now you start acting in a way to get that respect. It doesn't mean you're actually doing a good and godly thing, but you're doing things to impress people. You're doing things to get a good job. Hey, you're a, you're a great person. And so we start becoming like the idol that we have made. Okay. 
But in the end, the idol is nothing. It's lifeless. It's powerless. And so, too, is the end of the idolater. It ends in hell, eternal death, the living dead, if you will. Idolatry is living by sight, and it is useless. And so, hey, note the contrast. That is the way of the unbeliever. That's the way of our old man, and we still want to do those things. But the better way, the way of truth, the way of righteousness is calling on Yahweh to glorify himself, to hallow his name. Even though we can't see him, even though we don't hear him speaking from the heavens, this is living by faith. This is righteousness. And so as you live, as we worship together here, everything is about glorifying God and trusting in him. And so verses nine and following, right? That's where we go. So even though we cannot see our God, even though he doesn't speak to us audibly, he still is the true and living God. And so, right, let's sing about this. Let's live this way. And so Psalm 115 is, is not only a statement of fact, it is really a call to live by faith. So we'll stop there today and, again, encourage you to reflect on these things here in the days ahead. And so we'll pray and then we'll, we'll sing a, a hymn based on this, these ideas. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for um, this reminder of of uh, the contrast between you and, and uh, things that are false. Um, Lord, too often we, like Israel, uh, look to the things that you have made rather than to you. Forgive us for that, Lord. Strengthen us. Help us to live up to um, what you've called us to be and do. Uh, Lord, you are worthy of all glory for who you are as our maker and the one who controls all things. You truly are worthy of, our, of all glory and honor because you have saved us. You have made promises and fulfilled them. We um, uh, just simply ask that you would enable us to, to not live according to our old man, but live according to the new man, <clears throat> to honor you, worship you, trust in you, and to put aside all the, the idols that we do have, and the temptation to, to worship something that you have made. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, be honored in this and that you would strengthen us uh, for the advancement of your kingdom. And so we pray these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.